Good morning, Berean. Whenever we sing that song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, which was, didn't our praise group do an awesome job leading us this morning? Praise the Lord for that. But whenever we sing that song, I have a flashback to 1974. I'm driving in my 1972 dart swinger down the road. I have my blue cassette tape of the best of Andre Crouch is in there, and I'm blaring, bless the Lord, oh my soul, as I'm driving in the streets of Warren. In fact, probably Jim Dykeloff, I had the music on so loud, he could probably hear it, you know, growing up in the same. But, you know, that's just a great song. And praise team, you just did an awesome job leading us this morning. We all like rags-to-riches stories, rags-to-riches. I remember as a dad, one of my favorite times was reading bedtime stories to my kids. And, of course, two daughters and uh, one son. And rags-to-riches stories. Of course, I was always tired when I was reading stories to my kids. And I always tried to skip pages. Did you ever do that? But they were too sharp. They would never let you skip pages. I had abbreviated stories for everything. Goldilocks and the Two, bear, two Bears, um, uh, Snow White and the Five Dwarfs, you know. But they were too sharp for me. But they loved rags to riches. Cinderella, I mean, that's a rag to riches story. Of course, Abraham Lincoln, I mean, for my son, from a log cabin to the White House. That's a great story. Uh, of course, you've got Joseph in Egypt and how he went from the jail cell to second in command. And, of course, they came out with the, the prince of Egypt, if you remember that. So those are all good bedtime stories. But there's one bedtime story that you would not want to teach to your kids. It's the story the account that we're going to be studying today. It's Judge Jephthah. That's not a good bedtime story for kids. Everybody knows the story of, like, Gideon. Next week, we'll be starting to talk about Samson. People love those accounts. But Jephthah? Because when you talk about Jephthah, he was a son of a prostitute. And he also made a vow that called for the sacrifice of his daughter. And then many thousands of people were killed because they could not pronounce a word correctly. That's all in today's message. That's all in today's message. But Jephthah would not make a good bedtime story for kids. Just, just warning you. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. I'd like to just summarize the first five verses. There's the minor judges that we have in here. Judges uh, Tola and Jair. The Bible really doesn't talk too much about these two judges. With Jair... They said he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and they controlled 30 towns. That's all we know. 
He must have been a wealthy person to have that many donkeys, that many sons. But we do know that these were godly men, faithful men who served the Lord faithfully. And Israel was at peace for 45 years under their leadership. So then we come to verse 6 of chapter 10. And we see the same cycle that we often see in the book of Judges start all over again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the God, gods of Aram, the God of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the God of the Ammonites, the God of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. We often see this cycle where the people just, in this case, they're serving the false gods of the enemies that they had already conquered. They were searching for fulfillment in, in the wrong places. And the more they looked for fulfillment, they just became enslaved into the false gods of the land. And that's also true today. People try to fulfill, uh, find fulfillment, let's say, possibly in drinking. So they, they drink more. And then they become enslaved into their drinking. And then to try to get out of it, they drink even more. And they, whether it's pornography or materialism or whatever, they become enslaved in the very object that they're pursuing. And sin leads to slavery. And this was very true of the people of Israel. William James, the great philosopher and psychologist who's not a Christian, said this. Success is the primary God of our current age. Remember, as we talk about pagan gods, it doesn't have to be a little idol that we bow down before. An idol is anything that you put before God. So William James says that success in our culture has become the primary God. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2.13, says this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the springs of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So just like back then, people today are pursuing pagan false gods to find fulfillment. And they're not finding it. They're just becoming more and more enslaved. Let's take a look at verse 11. 
The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, and the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Ammonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. God is saying, you know what? I'm seeing a pattern here. I know this pattern. You put so much trust in these pagan gods... And you're in trouble right now. Why don't you go to them for help? History repeats itself. And in this situation, God is not going to send help immediately. And, you know, it's, this is very much like Romans chapter 1. Someone has said one of the, the greatest judgments that God can do is, you know, God can send to his people... Um, to let them have their own way and not to interfere and turn them over to their own needs and wants. We see this in the first chapter of Romans. Three times it says that God gave them over. God is talking about the wickedness and evilness of man in Romans 1. And he says God gave them over to their own ways and wouldn't interfere. And that's one of the greatest judgments. And that's what God is saying to Israel here. You want to worship false gods? Okay, have your false, false gods. Let them help you defeat the enemy. You know, a lot of times Israel wasn't truly repentant. They were just sorry for the situation that they were in. It'd be almost like a married couple where a man has an affair and he comes to his wife and asks for forgiveness. And she forgives. And then he goes out and he has another affair. And comes back to his wife and says, will you forgive me? And maybe she does. Then he goes out and has a third affair and comes back. After a while, if you're the wife, it's becoming hard, right? It's like, why did you go find fulfillment in other women? Because you're not truly repentant. Maybe you're just upset because you've gotten caught three times. And this is how Israel, Israel was very unfaithful to God. And God is just ready to turn them over to their false gods. But we see the long-suffering, the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Take a look at verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So God in his faithfulness and his mercy heard the cry of Israel, despite their repeated cycle of sin. And we often do the same thing. We, we, we come to God repeatedly asking for forgiveness for the same sins that we repeat over and over and over again. Take a look at verse 17. 
when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be the head over all who live in Gilead. What's very interesting here, there's a war that's looming here, and Israel has their army together. There's only one problem. They have an army, but no general. Nobody wants to take the lead in Israel. One commentary or commentator I read this week says that leadership is almost a spiritual barometer of the spiritual condition of people. The, the spiritual condition was slow, so low in Israel at this time that they lacked leadership. So here they had an army assembled to fight, but they did not have a leader. A uh, pastor was doing a sermon one day on Elijah, and during the sermon he poses the question to his congregation, where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God? And then he said, he is on the throne of heaven, and he is just as powerful today as he was in Elijah's day. Then he paused. The question is not so much, where is the God of Elijah? The question is, where are the Elijahs of today? God is just as powerful as he's always been. The question is, where is the leadership? Where are the Elijahs of the day willing to take a stand and fight for the Lord? Israel lacked a leader. So the army had to do some advertising. They had to do some promotion. Whoever comes leads this army we will make you the head over the whole Gilead area after the war is done. Now, there's a little subplot coming in. You're saying, hey, Steve, I thought you are supposed to be talking about a judge. Okay, here's where the judge comes in. Take a look at chapter 11. A little subplot going on. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are a son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him, and followed him. Now, this is very interesting. This man, first of all, the man's name is the same as the land he lived in. His name is Gilead. And he had many sons by his wife, but he also had one son by a prostitute. And his name was Jephthah. Well, that's a rough start. As they all grew up, and Gilead died, the sons did not want to share their inheritance with this one brother who had a different mother. 
So they drove him out of the house. So he went north and settled in the land of Tob near Syria. And he became almost like a, a Robin Hood. He was, he was a leader of a gang. Maybe he stole from the rich, gave to the poor. But he, he built up a reputation. He was a gang leader. Now, how would you like to put this for a resume? On Jephthah's resume, uh, who is your mother? Uh, prostitute. Uh, tell me about your siblings. Uh, they kicked me out of the house. Um, what's your current job? Uh, I'm in charge of a gang. That's Jephthah's resume. He's living way up north. He's a gang leader. He's a good gang leader. He's got a reputation. He's a mighty warrior. So he, this, this, guy, this guy is really good. So this is the, the plot here. And remember, Israel needs a leader. So let's take a look at verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Do you understand what's going on here? The people of Israel say, we really don't like you, Jephthah. We kicked you out of our area, but you are a pretty good leader. You are a pretty good fighter, and we need a leader now. Why don't you come back down and help us? And if you help us win, we're going to make you the head of Gilead. By the way, just so I let you know, Jephthah is in the Hall of Fame of Faith. He's in Hebrews chapter 11. He was not a perfect man by no means, but he was a man of faith. So he wasn't an opportunist here just coming down to get some land. They had to go get him. Can you imagine his brothers when Jephthah returned and became commander of the army? Imagine his brothers. They kicked him out of the house. How did they feel? They probably felt about the same as, remember Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis? When they sold him into slavery, they threw him in the pit, sold him into slavery. And then years later, they were starving for food, and they had to go to Egypt and get food. And lo and behold, the same brother that they threw into the pit, they sold into slavery, is now second in charge of Egypt, and they had to get their food from him. And I'm sure this is how Jephthah's, uh, how Jephthah brothers felt when he returned. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing in this section because there's a, a lot of verses to cover. But in verses uh, 12 through 27, let me summarize. Before declaring war on these enemies, Jephthah, who agreed to take the lead, just to show that he wasn't uh, rash, hot-tempered, he attempted to negotiate with the enemy. 
He knew that by fighting the battle, many lives would be lost. Being a soldier, being a gang leader, he wanted to spare as many lives. So he tried a peaceful reasoning with the enemy. When you have time on your own, go back and read chapter 11 because Jephthah goes through a little history lesson. This guy knows his history. He goes back 300 years earlier, and he knows scripture. And Jephthah is going to go back and talk about when Moses was leading the people from Egypt to the promised land, he had to go through different lands. And he asked permission or free passage to go through lands. And some of the lands refused to give it to him. So Moses and the people went anyways, and people started fighting Moses and the people, and they were defeated by Moses. The Lord gave them victory. And these were some of the same people. And now Israel has been in this land for 300 years. And these people are coming saying, hey, we want our land back. This land belongs to us. And Jephthah saying, where have you been for 300 years? God gave us this land. God gave us this land, and it's our land. Why are you coming now and saying it's your land? But the enemy did not listen to Jephthah. And we see in verse 27, you know, Jephthah says, let the Lord, the judge, decide this dispute. And we take a look. Let's take a look at verse 28 of chapter 11. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message of Jephthah that Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there, he advanced against the Ammonites. So this war was about to begin. And right here is an important passage. Jephthah is going to make a vow. I think all of us in life have said something we wish we could take back. And Jephthah is going to make a vow here that is just amazing. Take a look at what he says in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Wow. I mean, you know, the Bible tells us that vows are to be kept if you make them, but really don't make them. It's, it's not good to make them. Proverbs 20, 25 says this. It is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. Last year, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It might have been two years ago. And one of the principles on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said is, you don't need to, to make vows. 
You don't have to make vows. Let people should know that your yes is a yes and your no is a no. When, when you talk to people and you promise something, you don't have to finish your sentence by saying, I promise, cross my heart, hope to die. Uh, liquor palms, pinky swear. You don't have to do that. Your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. One of the most famous uh, vows in the Bible was probably Hannah, Samuel's mom. Remember, she was barren, couldn't have kids. Every year she would go with her husband to the tabernacle, and she would pray for a son. And she didn't have a son. Finally, one year she prayed. And God promised her, and she, she promised that, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him to you to serve you the rest of his, rest of his life. And she had little Samuel, if you remember the story. And Samuel was dedicated to the Lord and worked with the high priest Eli. Now, vows are completely voluntary. But the Bible says if you do make a vow, make sure you fulfill them. So Jephthah says, Lord, if you give me victory, if you give me victory, I'm going to sacrifice on a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house. Wow. And you know what? If you read the verses, the Lord gave the Ammonites into his hands, and Israel won. It was a great victory. They devastated 20,000. Uh, towns. They pursued the enemy all the way to the Jordan and um, a great victory for Israel. You know, think of his background. Think of Jephthah's background. Here he was born of a prostitute, kicked out of his house by his brothers, became a gang leader, but yet God still used him in a mighty way. You know, all of us, a lot of us have handicaps as we go through life. A lot of us have backgrounds that, you know, we wish we didn't have. But that doesn't mean anything to God. God can take people available to him and use them in a very powerful way. And he did that. He did that. Now, Jephthah was not perfect, but he did know God's word he had faith. I'm reminded of the verse in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. And Jephthah knew, and the Ammonites would not threaten Israel for the next 50 years. But let's go back to that vow. Take a look at verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home, and Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tim timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. We're going to look into this in a second. 
on what happened to this daughter. But most likely, he was hoping that maybe back then animals lived in houses. Hopefully, maybe he was thinking an animal was going to come out. But here he made this vow. Look at the response of the daughter in verse 36. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promise. Now the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileite. Her response is amazing. Her response, I mean, she's got to be in the same category as Isaac. Remember when Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him on the altar, and God intervened. It's amazing, her response. But here's the big question. Did he sacrifice his daughter, or didn't he? Now, I surround myself by a lot of commentaries. And whenever I do that, sometimes what's dangerous about that is half the people said he did. Half the people said he didn't. So here's the question. I'm going to show you both arguments. And I'm going to, we're going to take a little survey in here in just a minute. So make sure you listen to this. Some people said, or like half the commentaries I read said, he actually did. Scripture is clear. By the way, in verse 31, where he says the word whatever, in the original language, whatever is masculine. That means it's a person. When he said whatever, he wasn't thinking about animals. He was thinking about a person. Maybe he was hoping that it would be a, a stranger or a soldier or a servant. But he was really talking about a person. So scripture is clear. Plus, he gave his daughter two months of freedom before he would sacrifice her. Number two, he was a military man. He was desensitized to human life. He was a violent man. He was used to death. So that's why he went through and did it. Boy, I tell you, is our country desensitized to violence? Whether through our movies, video games, real life, abortion, whatever it is. People get killed for the minor, small reasons, don't they, nowadays? when you read the papers. We are desensitized to the sanctity of life. And another argument about Jephthah is, yeah, he was a man of faith, 
but he didn't really understand the grace of God. It's, he was trying to earn God's favor by, by bargaining with God. God, if you give me victory, I, I'll do this. Well, you don't have to bargain with God. You don't have to earn approval by God. We do that because it's sort of hardwired in us. We, we try to earn things in our country. Martin Luther said this. The law, the law says do, but it is never done. The gospel says believe, and it is already done. That's the grace of God. And so many of us, we, we're always trying to earn. We're trying to earn God's approval. We're trying to earn our salvation. So those are the arguments for he did it. Let's take a look at the arguments that he didn't do it. Going back to that word whatever. If it means a person, what happens if it's a, a, a neighbor's little child that comes out of the house? Uh, what happens if it's a complete stranger? Do you have the right to just go and take that person's life because you made a vow to God? He also knew scripture. Since he knew scripture, Bible is against child sacrifices. It's against killing. You know what the penalty was? If you sacrificed a child, you would be stoned to death by the city. Jephthah would know that. Now, these were dark days in Israel's history, but if you're going to go kill your daughter on a burnt offering, you're, I'm sure your friends and your neighbors would intervene. Also, you would have two months to reconsider your position. He let his daughter go for two months with her friends. Two months, he would be thinking about that. And certainly, he would reconsider. Another reason from Scripture, he knew that to sacrifice correctly had to be done at the tabernacle, which means he would have to make a trip all the way up to Shiloh where the tabernacle was, and it had to be done by a Levitical priest. What Levitical priest would go through and sacrifice a daughter on the altar like a normal animal? So there's, there, there's a lot going on in this. And this, uh, just one more um, argument. If I can turn the page in my notes here. Um, Leviticus 27 says that you can redeem a vow. If you make a vow and you wanted to get out of it, you could pay money to redeem it. Jephthah was a rich man. He just won a war. All the looting that takes place in a battle, he had enough money to redeem this vow. Would God take a vow like this seriously if it violated both human rights and divine law? And how could a spirit-empowered man like Jephthah, you know, follow through on this vow? One other thing, and, and then I'm going to ask for a vote here. Take a look at verse uh, 31, where it says, Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And some people say that the word and 
could be translated or. Or I will sacrifice it on the burnt offering. So when he comes back, whatever comes out of his house will be the Lord's or I will sacrifice it on a burnt offering. So if an animal comes out, he'll sacrifice it on the burnt offering. If a person comes out, he'll dedicate that person to the Lord, just like Hannah did with Samuel. So you see that there's two arguments here, and it's also very difficult to believe that the women in Israel would celebrate or remember this year after year, a sacrifice of a human being. Uh, it, that's really hard to understand. So, with all that said, we don't know for sure. So no one's wrong here. Who thinks he sacrificed his daughter? Raise your hand. Okay. Who thinks he didn't? Who's not sure? Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Sue, you and I. Okay, we're okay. Very good. Yeah, it, it's hard. It, it, it's really, really hard to know. But no matter what side you take, no matter what side you take, there's one big truth in all this. Our children are affected by many decisions that we make in a lot of different ways. And I think of spiritually speaking, I believe it was James Dobson that always said, lessons are better caught than taught. You don't have to say anything. Your, your kids are watching you. And we have an influence. Our kids watch us. And our kids are affected by everything that we do, whether good or bad. That's very humbling. And we should prayerfully go to the Lord and say, Lord, strengthen us. We want to be good examples before our kids. You know what's sad in the U.S.? One out of three kids grow up in a single-family home, and not to their choosing. That's just the way it is, and um, it, that's sad. But kids are affected, and adult children, they have a free will. They make their own choices, but when we have kids at home, yes, we, have a, uh, we need to pray that we're good examples before them. Closing up here, I'm on, I'm on my last page. Summarizing chapter 12, after this great victory, and the enemy is still on the run, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, comes to uh, Jephthah and say, hey, why didn't you call us to help? This is the same tribe that came to Gideon when Gideon fought the Midianites. The, the people from Ephraim they always wanted the glory, but they didn't want to fight the battle. So they come and they said, why didn't you call us? We would have helped you with the enemy. Of course, this was after the victory was won, you know? Now, Gideon flattered, flattered them. He was very diplomatic. Uh, Jephthah, not quite. He was more direct. He said, I did call you guys. You guys didn't respond. And it resorted to mudslinging, and they started talking trash to each other. 
And pretty soon the Ephraimites came to Jephthah and says, we're going to come burn your house down with you in it. And it's like, whoa. Now these were all Israelites fighting against each other. So Jephthah, the great warrior, says, okay, we're going to fight you. So there is a fight, Israel against Israel. And 42,000 people from Ephraim died in this war. But they were, they were running towards the river to get, get away. They were, they were running towards the Jordan, and Jephthah got all of his people, and they controlled the river Jordan as people were trying to flee across it. Now, you couldn't always distinguish a person from Ephraim from a person from Gilead. So there is one test that they had that they used. Whenever a person was crossing the, the river, Jephthah's men would say this, say the word shibboleth. Now, shibboleth is a word that means stream of water or flood. The people in Gilead, Jephthah's area, pronounced it Shibboleth. The people from Ephraim called it Shibboleth. So as the people were crossing the river, Jephthah's men said, are you from Ephraim? And of course, no. Say the word Shibboleth. And they would go, Shibboleth. And they would get killed. They would get killed because they could not pronounce the word. By the way, all of you who play Scrabble, Shibboleth is the word, is a word in the Webster's Dictionary. It's in there, and it means this. It stands for any kind of test that a group gives to outsiders to see if they really belong. It's almost like the next word, uh, next slide, like, when I see that word, I say creek. You say crick? I say creek. So I think some of us deserve to go here. I'm just seeing, I'm just seeing creek on that. So if you say crick, I guess it sort of shows where we come from, right? But, uh, yeah, but, you know, the, the good thing, we come to verse 7, and we see that Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in the town of Gilead. He was a great judge, not perfect. Oh, that vow that he made, if he sacrificed his daughter, and, and again, getting in the war with Ephraim, that, that might have been avoided. 42,000 people died. But you know what? We need a better judge. The point is, in closing, we need a better judge. Now listen to this. Jesus, like Jephthah, he was also rejected by his brothers and by his brethren. But instead of sacrificing his daughter to win God's favor, what did he do? 
He sacrificed his own life so that we could win God's favor. And he didn't take us, as one writer said, he didn't take us to the river to pronounce shibboleth. He took us to the cross and pr pronounced shalom. You know what shalom means? Peace of God, peace with God, peace of God. So we do have a better judge, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ, your son, with a great sacrifice on the cross for our sin. And Lord, we are, we are just like Jephthah. We, we stumble. We do wrong things. We, we have regrets. We have sin. We have things in our past we wish that we could redo. But yet, Lord, your son died on the cross for our mistakes, for our sins. He forgives us when we come and we repent. We thank you so much for that forgiveness and that we can have the peace of God, peace with you because of what your son did for us on the cross. So, Lord, we just thank you today for our great salvation. And I just pray, Lord, that you would teach us as parents to be good examples to our kids, strengthen us in that area. And, Lord, I just forgive us when we're trying to earn our salvation by doing good. Lord, it's just by your your grace and your mercy that we're saved. So we thank you for that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.